This last week, I was listening to the Irish rock band U2 and their song, White as Snow. I couldn't help but think of some of the resonances uh, with what they were singing and with the psalm that we're singing as well. This was a song created for the film Brothers, and the song lasts four minutes and 41 seconds, the length it takes for this soldier in Afghanistan to die. And as the song is playing, he's having flashbacks about his life and the mistakes he made and the choices he did and didn't uh, make, and and in that moment of, of sorrow and realization that this is the end, This lyric comes up. Once I knew there was a love divine, then came a time I thought it knew me not. As he reflected on his life and one time seeming to to experience the love of God, it seems far away from him now, and he wonders if that love still, still pursues him. And as he lies dying, this Last lyric is played, if only a heart could be as white as snow. And then it repeats, if only a heart could be as white as snow. I thought, as I've been studying Psalm 51 with you, that David would have asked that same question. There was a time in his life, especially early on in his life, when he led the nation of Israel in worship. and He was established as king and wrote so many psalms of worship. And then he had his great moral failure when he threw it all away. And I wonder if he thought of a time when he remembered a love divine, but then wondered if that love could still pursue him, still love him, still know him in the wake of using Bathsheba and sending her away, of of killing her husband Uriah. If only a heart could be as white as snow. We've seen him Uh, ask for that from the Lord. And we're going to see him ask for another really miracle today. And we're going to call our study today, Create in Me a Pure Heart. And this line is actually right in the very center of this psalm. And so this is very, very important because Jesus is later going to say, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So how is that possible? For someone like David or someone like you and me, maybe we've not done exactly what David has done, but we have our own share of problems in our life, our own failures, our own skeletons in the closet that we wish weren't there. Can that love that's so divine still love us? And so we're going to be in Psalm 51 today. I want to begin and just read those first um, nine verses that we've already studied, and then we're going to take a look at the very center of the psalm and tackle three more today. So this is how the psalm begins. This is the superscript above it. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. What words to lead this psalm. David committed this horrible act and committed murder, and it took Nathan the prophet coming to him to awaken his conscience. And so David, in the wake of that, composes this psalm, being the poet that he was. Verse 1, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, 
so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. These are the verses that we've been looking at so far. And in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we've been narrowing in on this fundamental truth. We are learning that we are more broken, messed up, rebellious, and yes, sinful than we often have the courage to admit. And yet, at the same time in Christ, because of Christ, when we trust Christ, we find that we are more loved, pursued, I'm sorry, forgiven, pursued, and embraced by our Heavenly Father than we ever dared to dream possible. My friends, that is a wonderful and glorious truth. And I want all of us to be able to lean into these two truths at the same time so that we may rejoice in the gospel of Christ more. So that's where we've come so far. And now we're at the very center of the psalm. And in verse 10, David asks for one more thing. He says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. What a fascinating, humble, and yet bold request from God. Create in me a clean heart. Now, I want to just highlight that word create for just a moment. It's a word in Hebrew that means to create from nothing. James Montgomery Boyce, in his commentary on this psalm, talks about how this word is used in Genesis 1 for the creation of the heavens and the earth by God. Strictly used, this word describes only what God can do to create ex nihilo, out of nothing. David's saying, God, just like you created out of nothing the heavens and earth, I need you to create out of nothing a new heart for me. Derek Kidner in his commentary said, with the word create, he asked for nothing less than a miracle. And that's exactly what David needs here. He needs the experience of God's grace and mercy. He needs the experience of being washed from his sins. He needs to experience a new heart. And so he asked for God to take up his role as creator once again and do what only God can do. I love what Charles Haddon Spurgeon, that Victorian minister, once said. What? Has sin so destroyed us that the Creator must be called in again? What ruin, then, does evil work among mankind? I love the way he worded that. But, but who else to grant a new heart? To be in the, the work of creating a new miracle than the God who spoke everything to existence in the first place because we desperately need this. We can't create it on our own. Remember what the prophet Jeremiah once said to his people, can an Ethiopian change his skin or a leopard its spots? Neither can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil. We can't change our hearts. The apostle Paul, that follower of Jesus, said in the book of Romans, I know nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. 
So he says, create in me a clean heart. And in our association with this word in the present day, we understand that something that is perhaps dirty or or unclean needs to be washed. And that is certainly true. But this also has connotations of what would happen in ancient Israel. When a person fell into sin, they were considered ceremonially unclean, impure. And there were rituals that God had his people go through, including the sacrifice of animals, so that his people would learn that they needed a sacrifice of another to be able to gain entrance into God's presence. And so when the scripture talks about heart, we've talked about this before. The heart is the center of our being, scripturally speaking. It controls the thoughts, desires, and actions. And so even though I have a graphic here that shows the picture of the human heart, it's not referring to the organ that pumps blood, but rather that core of us that just pumps our life, that steers us. Spurgeon once again said this, the heart is the rudder of the soul. Until the Lord take it in hand, we steer it in a false and foul way. O Lord, you did once make me. Be pleased to make me new, and in my most secret parts, renew me. That's exactly what David asked for here. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. David understood that the very core of his being had to be made new. When he says here, renew a right spirit within me, that word right is sometimes translated steadfast. In fact, your translation might actually use that word. Just think of what that word steadfast means. There's various synonyms like dedicated, resolute, single-minded, staunch, unflinching, unwavering. What David is asking for here is that God would so renew him with a right spirit, a steadfast spirit, that he would be single-minded in his pursuit of God. He had been double-minded, but now he wants to be single-minded. He wants the right spirit. He wants wants the core of his being functioning like it ought to be functioning. So let's just pause here and just make a, a single point of application. Let's cry out for new hearts. There's a sense in which God, at the very first time we cry out, gives us a new heart. This is the miracle of regeneration. In fact, us Calling out is evidence that God is already working his miraculous powers within us. But whenever we sense our hearts going astray, let's learn to call out for a new heart, a clean heart. And we need to do this because, as the scriptures tell us, our hearts are deceitful above all things, desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind of all the strange things that exist in this cosmos. The very core of our beings is indeed one of the strangest. It's the thing that we know the least about. It leads us in all kinds of different places, and here the diagnosis is that our hearts are sick. Who can understand it? We can't understand it. But the good news is there's a great physician who does understand it. In fact, Jesus, at one point in his earthly ministry, was combating the way people normally thought about things out there making them unclean and impure. And Jesus corrects that line of thinking by saying this, what comes out of a person is what defiles him, makes him unclean, makes him impure. What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, Murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. 
All these come from within, and they defile a person. My friends, do you see what Jesus is saying here? He's saying that the core of our being pumps out what is wrong with us. I want to use an illustration that was in the news this last week. Many of y'all, I'm sure, have heard about the 21-year-old Georgia shooter who murdered eight women in an attempt to eliminate temptation. This man also was a member of a Southern Baptist church. He had a video that was released by his church a few years ago of him talking about how he wanted to become a follower of Jesus, to be baptized. As news came to light this week of what happened here, evidently he had been visiting places. And he saw these places as the problem, not himself. And because he thought that way, he decided to take up in his own hands violence. And as one family member said, he massacred these people. He really needed to listen to what his professed Lord and Savior, Jesus, taught. The problem is not out there. The problem is in here. This is where evil thoughts come from. This is where adulterous thoughts come from. This is where lust comes from. And we don't need a bandage here or a little tweak here. We need to be renewed from within. We need to learn how to put to death these things. And so I know, just, let me just make a, a moment's pause here and a comment. Um, I, because I know we have some Asian friends who are watching online. And there's been a lot of violence, as you know, against Asian communities across this nation here. And this thing just compounded uh, people's fears in the Asian community. So let me just say to our friends who I know are watching online, we want you to feel safe, especially um, here in our place, of our neck of the woods, Texas. And if you ever feel threatened um, or intimidated, uh, let me know as your pastor. Um, I want to let us know. We want to help you navigate that. We will stand in harm's way for you. That's what brothers and sisters in Christ do. And if you ever need help, let us know. We'll help you navigate the justice system. We want you to know that we're on your side here. Hate has no place in any professed believer's life. And unfortunately, sometimes even people who name the name of Jesus do some horrendous things. Someone says, well, how do you make sense of what this man did, John? I know he was a professing believer in Jesus. He was one at least outwardly. But the Apostle John tells us that everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So I don't pretend to know this man's heart. But what we do know is the fruit that comes from the heart. And here, John, echoing Jesus, tells us if we hate someone, we've already assassinated them in our heart. The problem is not out there. The problem is in here. And that's why we so desperately need a new heart. I've quoted from Paul David Tripp in this series already. I just want to bring this to light once again because maybe seeing this situation of this shooter last week can help us understand a little bit more of what the Scriptures are teaching. He said, People, locations, situations don't cause me to sin. They're where the sin of my heart gets revealed. Sin is a matter of the heart before it's ever an issue of behavior. 
So those women didn't make that 21-year-old man sin. That was simply the place where his, his sin got revealed. But even here, there's good, friend, good news, my friends. Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus came as the one who was the friend of sinners. In fact, people use that description of him as a slur. And yet Jesus says, I've come to seek and to save the lost. What God wants to do is to take people's hearts, no matter what they say they believe, and to call them back to their creator, to have them set upon him, to have a new heart created. In fact, the Apostle Paul will tell us that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. And So what you and I are called to do, my friends, is to live into that new creation. That's why the author to the letter of Hebrews, or the, the author of the letter of Hebrews said, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Rip it off. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. That's what we're called to do. Whenever temptations arise, whenever we're drawn after them in our own hearts, let us fix our eyes on Jesus. My friends, that's all that I call you to week in and week out. Let me just give you a little behind-the-scenes view of what I try to do as a pastor. All I try to do every week is to convince you and me that we really do need Jesus and to point us to Jesus over and over again. I'm not a funny guy, so I don't have, like, comedy to give you. <laughs> I'm not very good on just coming up with some uh, interesting points of advice to make your life better. All we have to offer here is Jesus. I got two wonderful texts this week from people in our church who said, thank you for pointing us to Jesus. And so that's, that's the highest compliment I can be given because that's all I have to offer. Jesus is the only solution to your hearts and to mine. So David, verse 11, takes another step. He's, he's asked God to create in him a clean heart to renew a right spirit within him. And then he says this, Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Let's focus in on that first line. Cast me not away from your presence. What is David doing here? I know this raises all kinds of questions for us, and we want to we ask and just kind of get this in line with theology and what we're supposed to believe, but let's just marinate in this for a moment. Cast me not away from your presence. Why would David think this was a possibility? Well, he took another man's wife and had his way with her and sent her away. And when it came to light what was going on, he had her husband killed. God would be entirely justified in banishing David from his presence. As the prophet Habakkuk said to God, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. David committed evil. It was front page news, the wrongdoing that he had done. So David knows that God would be justified in banishing him from his presence. As Isaiah the prophet said, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear you. This was spoken in the context of people wanting to be religious in a certain context, but wanting to do what they wanted to do in their other context. And here, you know, Isaiah the prophet says, you can't treat God that way. You can't just throw him a bone. 
You see, my friends, what sin gives you is relational distance. What David did in these horrific crimes was he suppressed what was true about reality. That there is a God, that he lives in a moral universe, that God calls us to live in a certain way. He, he had to suppress that, pretend like that wasn't the truth, and create a reality where he was the center, where his desires reigned supreme. And so David was walking away from God. He wanted in those moments relational distance from God. So when he realizes what he has done, it makes sense for David to say, cast me not from your presence, even though you'd be justified in doing that. What you're justified in doing, Lord, don't do. John Calvin put it like this. It is natural that saints, when they have fallen into sin, should feel anxiety at this point. Second part of that line. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Holy Spirit, of course, is God's personal presence. And I know there's a lot of debate about what happened in the Old Testament, what happened in the New Testament. But here David realizes that God's personal presence, which had been with him, that he had, remember, he had been described as a man after God's own heart. He had led the people in worship. He remembered what it was like to lead the nation to the presence of the Lord. And now he realizes that God could banish him and he wants the Spirit to stay with him at this point. And the New Testament tells us, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Do not grieve the personal presence of God by suppressing reality, having it your own way, running away from God, seeking relational distance. So when David says, Cast me not from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. What's going on in this moment? How, what have you noticed about the shift in David's desires? Let's diagnose this for a minute because it, it helps diagnose our own hearts in this moment too. What did David want? He wanted relational distance from God. What does David want now? He does not want relational distance from God. He knows that his only hope is mercy. His only hope is grace. His only hope is a new heart. His only hope is that God would wash him and make him white as snow. And so David is like many of us. We're a contradiction. We're a living, walking, breathing contradiction. On the one hand, we say we want our sin. But in moments of sanity, we know that's not what we want. One Puritan by the name of John Owen said that when a Christian sins, he never sins with a full heart. There's always a battle that goes on. The Apostle Paul put it like this in the book of Galatians. Our flesh, our fallen sinful nature, wars against the spirit, and the spirit wars against the flesh so that we don't do what we want to do. Does our sinful nature want to sin? The spirit is working in us against that. Do we want to follow God? Our sinful nature is working against that. John Piper, one of the men who I've, I've read a lot from and has influenced me a lot, has written once these words, Only God can make the depraved heart desire God. 
What we're seeing, my friends, is Psalm 51 is a real-time version of David wanting God all over again, of desiring God once again. And whereas he said, I don't want God, I want my own way, now he just, he understands that that's all he wants. And Piper, in his book, Desiring God, put it like this, in the end, the heart, that is the redeemed heart, the new heart, longs not for any of God's gifts, but for God himself. To see him and know him and be in his presence is the soul's final feast. David had feasted at the table of this world, set by his own desires, and he is famished. And now he knows there's really only one feast that can satisfy him at the depths of his soul. And that's the feast of his creator-turned-redeemer who might just be gracious enough not to cast him from his presence. So here's another point of application, my friends. Let us draw near to God, and he will draw near to us. The whole Christian life, in one sense, should be a continually drawing near to God and experiencing him drawing near to us. We may mention of the story that Jesus told of the prodigal son a few weeks ago where the son went off into a far country. He wanted relational distance from his father. And then he found himself in the bottom of a pigsty. And he realized really what he wanted was life with his father all along. So he made the journey back, and Jesus said while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. My friends, is that the picture that you have in your mind of God when you've blown it? That he is looking for that first impulse of your heart to turn back to him so that he can come and just lather you with love and affection to kiss you, to embrace you. My friends, we are learning that we are more sinful, depraved, messed up, jacked up, screwed up than we often have the courage to admit. And yet at the same time in Christ, we find that we are more loved and pursued and embraced by this Father than we ever dared dream possible. So my friends, understand that even the desire to want to want to draw near is a gift from God himself. God wants to reclaim us. He wants to liberate us from our own desires. And so that's why Jesus, one point, said, All that the Father gives to me, I will never cast out. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. Even the worst of the worst. Because Jesus is willing to take our sins upon himself. The psalmist, Psalm 73 I wish it was written by David, but it was actually written by one of the worship leaders of Israel, one of the sons of Korah. But they're teaching us how to think about our life and our desires. And in Psalm 73, they say, Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. My friends, how is it with your desire for God? I remember when I was a Christian, I became a Christian when I was 16, and a couple years later I came across John Piper's book, Desiring God. I just remember being struck by that phrase, huh, to desire God. 
I was already a believer in Jesus, but I was asking the question, what does that mean? And from those earliest of days, through the helps of people like Piper and some of the good teaching I've been able to be under, I've understood that so much of the Christian life is the cultivation of that desire for God. And to realize, like what we sung a while ago, that nothing in this world can satisfy, that Christ alone is endless joy. And so we cling to Christ. So moving along, my friends, verse 11, restore to me, verse 12, I'm sorry, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Notice David doesn't say here, grant me salvation. He in a sense knew that that had been given to him as a gift from God, but what he wants here is the joy of that salvation restored. My friends, it should be the normal experience of a Christian that there is a, a fountain of joy welling up within us as God continually draws us back to himself. And so this is exactly what he asked for. James Montgomery Boyce in his commentary put it like this. David is not praying that God would restore his salvation as if he had lost it and needed to get it back again. It is not the salvation he had lost, but the joy of it. And rightly so. My friends, if we don't have joy in our life as followers of Jesus... That's a warning light, like on your dashboard of your car, indicating that something is off. There should be an undercurrent of joy as we're experiencing the continual renewal of God's Spirit as He draws us to Christ. Christians should be joyful people. Someone says, stop. You can't be talking about joy and Christianity in the same breath. Christians are some of the most joyless people I've known. Let me just say, I hear you. I've been around some people who say they're followers of Jesus. And you would never know it by the way they project themselves in life. Some of that is the fault of the church. I have a friend who lives in Calgary who told me for the years growing up in his church... He got the distinct impression that it was a sin to smile in church. Everyone was so somber and so gloom. Christians weren't supposed to smile, weren't supposed to laugh. And it wasn't until he was an adult and he went to a conference where John Piper was speaking and he heard the words joy in the Christian life in the same sentence. And he's like, is that even possible? Is that allowed? Absolutely. Absolutely. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a minister in London, and he said this back in the middle of last century. He said, the greatest need of the hour is a revived and joyful church. Nothing is more important than that we should be delivered from a condition which gives other people looking at us the impression that to be a Christian means to be unhappy, to be sad, to be morbid. Christian people too often seem to be perpetually in the doldrums, and to often give this appearance of unhappiness and lack of freedom and absence of joy. There is no question at all that this is the main reason why large numbers of people have ceased to be interested in Christianity. He was saying that in the middle of last century. I think there's probably other reasons why people are leaving the church. And I know there's a concern for our younger people being raised in the church, but maybe we should ask the question of the culture of our churches. Are we communicating that to be a Christian is to have no joy? 
If that's the case, why would anyone ever become a Christian? The Apostle Paul, writing from prison to his friends in Philippi, said that part of his mission is to work with them for their joy. And that's part of my job as a pastor right here with you, is to work with you for your joy in Christ, to help you understand the depths of his grace and mercy lavished upon you so that there is an undercurrent of joy in your life. John Piper, again, says this, Hearing the word of the cross and preaching it to ourselves is the central strategy for sinners in the fight for joy. Nothing works without this. Here is where we start. Here we see the glory of Christ more clearly than anywhere else. Here is where we must linger. My friends, that's why week in and week out we are unapologetically Jesus-centered, cross-centered. Because it's at the cross where we realize that, yes, we should have been cast off from the presence of God. He should take his Holy Spirit from us. He'd be just in banishing us. But on that hill outside of Jerusalem called Golgotha, the place of the skull, is that hill where we find mercy. That's why we call our church Mercy Hill Church. Because that very place where Jesus bore our sin is the place where you and I get to experience grace and mercy and, yes, joy. So we're going to sing in just a moment. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Listen to how Jesus put it. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. I have told you this, so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Jesus has come so that we may have joy, his joy, the joy of his salvation that he grants to us, and that our joy may be complete. So my friends, in in many ways, our responsibility as Christians is to pursue joy in Christ. Or rather, I should say, pursue Christ, because joy is the outcome. Jonathan Edwards put it like this, the happiness that Christ gives his people is a participation in his own happiness. C.S. Lewis put it like this, it is a Christian duty for everyone to be as happy as he can be. I was actually reluctant to put this up here because I know it can be interpreted in one sense as just putting on a fake smile. That's not what we're talking about. You know, having been a part of Mercy Hill Church, we've talked about how lament and tears are part of life in this world. But even in sadness. There's undercurrent of joy. The Apostle Paul could talk about when we bury our loved ones, we can weep, but not as those who have no hope. Burying loved ones in Christ enables us to look to that day of resurrection, when our joy will be complete. So so I want us to to maybe linger in this for a little bit and take it seriously. What would it be like for you and I to think that Yeah, Jesus died to win our happiness and to win our joy. And so maybe I should actually pursue that in Christ. St. Francis of Assisi put it like this, Let us leave sadness to the devil and his angels. As for us, what can we be but rejoicing and glad? David said, Let me hear joy and gladness. And in Christ we hear the Father singing and rejoicing over us. So back to that song that I began the sermon with. 
Once I knew there was a love divine, then came a time I thought it knew me not. And as that soldier laid dying, reflecting on his life, this line came up as really interesting. Who can forgive forgiveness where forgiveness is not? There's probably a lot of different ways to interpret this, but as I read it, He's reflecting on his life and he's realizing some of the choices he made and he needs forgiveness and maybe, maybe he should have granted forgiveness or asked people for forgiveness, but it's not there. So who can forgive forgiveness where forgiveness is not? And the answer, sings Bono, is only the lamb as white as snow. My friends, as John the Baptist put it, behold the lamb who takes away the sins of the world.